Welcome to Funeral Potatoes for the Singles Ward. Tune in to today's taboo topic with Kaylee and Tracy. We're good to go. And what? We're good to go. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's all I said. Okay, that's... I did not hear all the words. I just thought I heard no, and I'm like... No! <laughs> Uh, okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Let's do this. Oh my gosh. So, welcome. Welcome to uh this week's episode. Hopefully, it's not <laughs> I was going to say we hope this email finds you well, <laughs> but <laughs> We all know how the world is treating us, so this oh email gosh. or this podcast is probably not finding you well. If you are, you know, elbows deep in a bucket of ice cream, that's fine. We won't judge you for it. That is totally fine. It didn't find me well either, so we're just here trying to do this, and we're going to take out as many sniffles of mine that we can. And Tracy, well, we'll see. You might get tired of this after a while. I'll see what I can do. Okay. But anyways, we do have things to talk about today. We don't have any corrections corner for today. No, we've decided we've done enough wrong things and we did a few right things and here we are. We've decided we are perfect and we no longer need (laughs) correcting. So no, I'm just kidding. We have reached the top. There is nowhere else for us to go. We're good. good. It's all downhill from here. Oh my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Literally though. Yep. All we can do is go down now. All the way down. Okay, so which we're going to be going down pretty far today, honestly, in my opinion. Um, because today we are discussing the miniseries that came out on Hulu, Under the Banner of Heaven. Mm-hmm. How do we talk about this? Okay, so just for reference, for those who didn't watch the series and don't know a lot about it, that's totally fine. But you're going to learn things if you listen to the whole episode. Yeah. To just put it in a very concise manner really quickly so you can, you know, decide if you want to listen to this or not. So the premise is, and we've got this from the Deseret News, um, written, like, from the article, like, way, way back when. So it's a true crime miniseries um, about Brenda Lafferty. She was found dead on July 24th, 1984. Pioneer Day. The 24-year-old was discovered in their Utah home in the small town of American Fork. So she died along with her 15-month-old daughter, Erica. After an investigation, it was discovered that her husband, Alan, it was his older brothers, Ron and Dan, who had committed the murders after feeling like Brenda was separating them from their sibling. And they were all Mormons or had been Mormon at some point. And so this really rocked the Mormon community. And it's continued to do um, to have a lot of conversation in and out of the church since then, especially since a book was written on this under the banner of heaven, a story of violent faith by John Krakauer. Um, and that was published back in 2003. And that's actually been like one of the top selling Mormon related books ever since then. People kind of like know the Book of Mormon and they kind of know about Under the Ban of Heaven. And so a miniseries was made on this recently and it just premiered. Um, so that's kind of what we're talking about. Tracy, do you want to kind of dig into the book a bit? Yeah. So like Kaylee said, the book is called Under the Banner of Heaven, A Story of Violent Faith by John Krakauer. The book was written, it's technically a work of nonfiction, 
Um, John Krakauer investigated two things, which were the origin and evolution of the church's history and the double murder committed by Ron and Dan Lafferty. According to Wikipedia, it says, quote, the Lafferty's were formerly members of a very small splinter group called the School of Prophets, led by Robert C. Crossfield, also known by his prophet name, Onias. The group accepts many beliefs of the original LDS church at the time when it ceased the practice of polygamy in the 1890s, but it does not identify with those who call themselves fundamentalist Mormons or FLDS. The book examines the ideologies of both the LDS church and the FLDS church and splintering groups, end quote. So a little bit more about this. So all of the Lafferty's were originally members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So they were originally Mormon. At some point in time, which we'll explain as we go through the series, the brothers, they all start splintering off into other forms of Mormonism, other sects. So some go towards FLDS, some go towards um, the School of the Prophets, and they all kind of make up their own form of the church, really. We'll explain it a little bit more, but I just want you to know that like, they did start out as members of the church, and then they split off and went their own way. Keep that in mind. And as we talk about the FLDS church a little bit in this episode, one thing that I want to make very clear to people is that the FLDS church was once a part of our church as well. We are all technically related <laughs> when it comes to the gospel. Like the FLDS church split off because of polygamy. Like when polyg the practice of polygamy ended, that's when the FLDS church really split off and they were like, we're going to keep it going. We're going to do our own thing. So like their history is our history. We share the same beliefs with the exception of polygamy. There are a lot of similarities. And I mean, like things have continued to like change a little bit through time um, as, you know, groups are wont to do, but we really do have the same beginning um, and we did have the same core at yeah. some point. So those people that like to say, well, FLDS is not the same. You're technically correct, but also you're incorrect because we all come from the same thing. Yeah. We're all part of the same church family in a way. Yeah. Well, then what's interesting is that like growing up, I like I kind of knew about the, the FLDS. And then I was like, OK, that's weird that one group split off. Like now we're just kind of like two groups. Um, but actually, like last I like was looking into, there's over 50 different sects now of more of, of essentially Mormonism or the LDS uh, Church. Like I, I had no idea. So and like we've got, you know, the, we're going to be talking about the school of prophets. So not all of them reference like the LDS Church at all or LDS faith being LDS. You um, mean any reference anymore? But it's it's just very interesting um, to start learning about this kind of stuff to see how people have split off um, the size of their groups, how they've function and survived um, some of them have died out some have begun begun at different points in time so we'll be able to touch on a little bit of this um during today's episode which should be interesting we'll have to do an episode about like the different offshoots because there are so oh, yeah. many and their stories are wild too so oh true yeah and i know that we've like referenced the flds charts but like i know we don't we haven't always like gotten our facts completely correct because there's just there's just so much to it um so yeah, and we're confusing like multiple sects. Yeah, and, like, exactly. Yeah, it's just so, there's so much uh, information. Mm -hmm. So, 
Okay, so a little bit about John Krakauer. So he has a storied background in writing. Um, he wrote originally for National Geographic, Rolling Stone Magazine, Architectural Digest, and Smithsonian Magazine as a journalist from 1983 to 1989. And then he went on to publish his first book in 1990, which was called Iger Dreams, Ventures Among Men and Mountains. And this book was a collection of essays about mountaineering and rock climbing. Um, he's gone on to write a bunch of other books. Most of the books that he writes are works of nonfiction, where he follows the true accounts of travelers, Everest hikers, NFL football players, humanitarians, and more, and tells their story. John Krakauer, interestingly enough, was not a member of the church at any point in his life, but he grew up in a heavily Mormon populated area of Oregon where he learned about the church, he learned about church culture, and he learned a little bit about church history growing up. So it is very possible that he was working with a lot of bias while he was exploring the events of church history, as well as the events of this double homicide, um, but it's unclear. The author was not included in the process of creating the miniseries, however, so there's definitely some changes that have happened between the book and the screen play. Right, definitely. So when the series started coming out, we actually found a Facebook group. I hope we don't get in trouble for mentioning this. Um, but so Sunstone put together the Sunstone Under the Banner of Heaven Watch group. It is a private group, but there's um, like 5,000 people in it who have watched the series essentially kind of together um, and have gone through sharing the information that they know, um, the things that they like realized that were wrong or that were good. They've talked about their own faith journeys and so on. It was very insightful to hear about all this stuff going on. And they did mention that like, okay, like this is where he did do this right in the book and here's how they did it right in the show or they did it wrong or so on. They have also um, talked about it on their on the Sunstone podcast. You can go to sunstone.org to learn more. They're a LDS adjacent kind of forum. Okay, so that's the author. Then we do have the screenwriter for the show. That was Dustin Lance Black, and he is a former Mormon who left the church as a teenager. So apparently from my reading, he drafted, like he started putting together a, a series for Under the Banner years ago. He's been wanting to do this for a while. And he even had like his two producers, including Ron Howard. Um, I just can't remember the other name off the top of my head. They and like they knew he was working on it for a few years, and he just needed to get it to where he wanted it to be. Um, so um, he eventually got it. Clearly, since we have the show now, um, and even ish, um, in Newsweek, I learned that he also um, worked closely with Brenda's family to understand what she was like, so that he could best portray her in the dramatization of the events. While we know that not all the show is going to be correct in showing attributes of like the LDS faith or about history, um, they did try to do a really good job in making sure that they um, expound on certain elements of the story, which is very interesting. So when, I don't know how much, Tracy, you went into like looking on like how they put their show together, but everyone talked about how hard it was to do because essentially they were trying to make like two shows because they were doing the crime show and then they're doing like the church history show. So they were having a very difficult time in finding locations to use for filming all those pieces with Joseph Smith, um, especially Emma Smith. She has like a ton of costumes and they had to create their own ones for each one because they were like, we can't reuse old ones or else they've been in, they've been used in other shows before. And they like couldn't use like 
and they couldn't use actual stuff like from the church, like going like Carthage Dale. So they had to like recreate everything. But luckily they talked about how, you know, we can see and view and study a lot of like what happened back then. So they were able to recreate things pretty well. It was just like a ton of effort for them, um, which I mean, fair, you're making a show. It's going to be a lot of work. I thought about that too. Like I didn't actually do any research on this portion, but I was thinking like, it must have been so challenging to do those church history portions not having the support of the church because you can't use the church history sites. Yeah, they were they said they couldn't. <laughs> you can't use anything that like the church has used in their films, like any of the costumes, any of like nothing, the props, anything, which would have been so much easier if they could have used anything right? that the church had on hand. Yeah. Like it would have cut the cost of everything that they made in the production so much. And then on top of that, like they have to find things that will like they're going to have to like partner with local governments to find these shooting locations and be like, yeah, but we're not part of the church. So like Mm -hmm. we know that we can't do exactly the same thing that like other church films have done in this area. Like we're not connected with them. So they probably had to like really work overtime to differentiate between those two. Oh, they did. They did. And like they had to like go to like different locations and they had to like, take into consideration um weather because like for different shows like there's supposed to be snow there's supposed to be like summertime all the different seasons and like they talked about like one uh what were the details i was checking it out and they talked about like they basically accidentally turned the town into like an a skating rink um because like they're one of their water trucks or something and so they just like they ran into a lot of issues in getting this basically built out because the show really does require so much. They needed to have like parts of Utah that that still, you know, look old and which actually is very easy to do. Um, But like they they needed to have like older settings for um, the 1800s. They had to get different seasons. They had to get so many different costumes. It took a lot of time and a lot of effort, Um, which I mean, you know, goes into the effort required to make a show, but it was very interesting for them to be able to highlight and emphasize the difficulties that they had in being able to cast something like this. Because yeah, when I started the show, I was not expecting them to do flashbacks, let alone that many because each episode and there's seven episodes, you guys, they, they have quite a few expansive references and flashbacks um, to Joseph and Emma Smith throughout the entire show. And not just them, they were showcasing um, that massacre and a few other points that were very very interesting. And I think they did them all really well, too. They did. I thought so. There's especially, we'll talk about it when we get to that episode, but there's one scene where they are constantly switching back and forth between a church history flashback and present day for them, like 1984 present day. And it it it's so jarring how like closely related the two different scenes and sequences are. But it, oh my gosh, it's such good editing and cinematography and it's so good. Like it hurts, but it's so good. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So it's a very, it's a very intense show. If I usually don't care for like drama and this is a very much a dramatized show, like, and it's true crime and everything, but it it was very intense and it was very well done. I thought a lot of this show does play on to the history of the church as well as the history of the crime that happened with the Lafferty family. So we'll be going through this episode by episode. So consider this your spoiler warning if you haven't seen the series. 
So if you if you don't want spoilers, you can end your listening right now and go on with your life. But this is the point where we are going to get very specific in each episode. So this is your spoiler warning. Yes, very much so. And then we'll be talking a little bit about some of the things that they did change in the show uh, as compared to like what's true history and everything. Um, Not too much. We just want to focus on the essence of the story. Um, But starting off, the star of the show, Jeff Pyrie, our favorite Andrew Garfield, doesn't really exist. Um, He and his partner, Bill Taba, um, they're not real people. But they did really good in bringing characters to life. They did. Honestly, Anytime Andrew Garfield cried in the show, I was like, oh my gosh, who is making this sweet baby angel cry? And then uh-huh. Detective Bill Taba was my favorite character, hands down, through the entire yeah. show. I know we're going to talk more about it later, but I was like looking through your notes, Tracy, and I love like all the all the things we were saying about Bill Taba. Um, absolutely amazing because, yeah, I – okay, so you guys, I, I absolutely adore Andrew Garfield. He is definitely one of my favorites. But it got to a point where I had so many strong emotions about this show – that he wasn't doing enough for me by like episode four or five. Like it wasn't enough. Um, but Gil Birmingham helped cover the rest of the way. And that's how I got through the show. Like amazing, amazing. We are thrilled to be new members of the Dialogue Podcast Network. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Dialogue, Dialogue is a collective of independent and interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion into all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. You can support our podcast and others in the network by subscribing at dialoguejournal.com. Subscribers receive special benefits like ad-free episodes and bonus content. You can learn more at dialoguejournal.com. So check it out. Let's get into it. Let's, let's do this. Episode one. Um, oh, they, they do have titles, don't they? Oh, I, I did not notice that. Okay, so <laughs> episode one is titled When God Was Love. So this does a great, oh my gosh, I got, I mean, it starts off like super strong right away by majorly showcasing Utah. Yeah. If you've ever lived in Utah, like, no, like the smaller parts of it, like you're just like, okay, yeah, that's Utah. It's very strong. And it does start off with present Andrew Garfield. I'm going to say it. Andrew Garfield brings major Mormon Dilf energy that I personally did not know was possible. (laughs) But Andrew Garfield Uh brought it like he's in the garage fixing a lawnmower in like playing with the kids, girls, major Mormon Dilf energy, which like, never have I ever felt that before, but Mm -hmm. felt it because of Andrew Garfield. So goodness. He, he does do a very good job at it. So we do know he at least talked to a few Mormons to get this show figured out. He did also talk to a Mormon detective, which is what he plays in the show. So he got some good points there. Um, and actually, like, I really love, like, how they created his family and, like, have it pre- present, like, through the show and everything. But what I also thought was funny is when he gets called in, he step he steps into his role as that major Mormon Dilf right away with a white shirt and tie and I'm like, he's going to church. He's not going to work. Like it took me a minute to like get into the mindset. I'm like, okay, like he's going to see a crime. He's going to do some serious office work, like not office work. Um, that's very inappropriate. Um, he's going to do his job. Um, but I just, I really had the thought like, okay, white shirt, he's going to, he's going to church. But no, 
he goes to a crime scene where Brenda Lafferty and her 15-month-old daughter, Erica, have been brutally murdered. And then Alan, the husband, is outside and he is taken into custody as the prime suspect because, you know, the rules of true crime, it's usually always the husband. 99% of the time. So while questioning Alan, Alan tells him that he has left the church, which Jeb takes as a sign of guilt. He completely switches right then to, he's like, no, you're, you're a Mormon. Like, I can't, I can't believe you've done that. Alan says, no, I've left the church. And Jeb is immediately like, you're, you're the one you did it. It's funny, but also like terrible and kind of like true. Like you can, you, you see how people are quickly willing and able to change their, their mind shift and shift their minds, whatever, um, to be like, oh, you're not a Mormon anymore. You're not a good person anymore. Yeah. And so we're getting the bulk of this story from Alan's perspective, like this throughout the series. Alan goes on to explain to Jeb how he met Brenda, how they fell in love, and the first time that he introduced Brenda to his family, which is like, it's such a yeah. Well, like, and the thing, the thing is, it, like, if you aren't paying close enough attention, though, um, when Brenda does meet the Lafferty family, it almost looks like easy and peaceful and like very Mormon. That's the thing. But if you have any understanding of like the problems that are under the surface, you're like, okay, everything about this is very wrong. Um, like, especially as you start digging into gender roles, because those are very established in the Lafferty family like flashbacks and everything as well as like Jeb's Jeb Pyrie's home. So and as well as Brenda's uh her family because they're not the same way. Her um they do flashbacks of her family back in Idaho about her parents encouraging women to get, you know, an education, to get jobs, to have their own goals with while having a family. So like we know that Brenda wants to be a news anchor and seeks a communications degree from BYU. They, they did a good job, I think, um, of putting a face to Brenda, which is very beautiful because a lot of the time, like with true crime shows, like we just, we either like put the person just on a pedestal or we don't share their real history or everything. We focus so much on the crime and throughout the entire series that Brenda really does have her own story to share. And it's, I think it's beautiful that they were able to do that. So in Brenda's family, she was able to like start working for things. Um, you know, we get to learn how she decides to go to BYU but then there's the Lafferty family. And they are the complete opposite. They have strict rules for women and men. They have strict rules and decisions about what men and women can and can't do. And that really is highlighted best in the first episode when Lafferty's go to their neighbor's home to help them clear rocks from the yard all of the men are picking up rocks and throwing them into this truck and driving through the field to do it. And all the women are setting up like a refreshments table and, you know, talking together and really not doing anything. Brenda leaves the table. She finds a rock. She throws it into the back of the truck and then she continues helping the guys. And as she's doing this, like the brothers think it's funny. They're all like, oh yeah, ha ha ha, help us, whatever. The dad... Papa Lafferty, I don't remember what his name is. He's like hardcore judging her, giving her like the stink eye. And all the girls are like, what the the heck is she doing? She's not supposed to do that. Everyone is on edge just because she picked up a rock and threw it into a truck. Yeah. Um, And then it goes on to the episode on At That Family. Um, It's not a reunion. It's just like a weekend thing. Pa Lafferty announces that they are going on a mission. 
um, and then proceeds to, which I think is like the weirdest thing. Um, but you know what? Do your thing, dude. Um, ruin everything. He sets up the next in line to take care of the family. And he says that Dan, the son Dan, has been called to lead the family while he and his wife are serving a mission. Two things are immediately problematic or strange rather. So Dan, aka Walmart Captain America. Thank you. Well put. <laughs> yes. Um, he's creepy right out of the gate. Um, he does this whole thing when he's meeting Brenda. Um, and like, he, is, he he makes him an excuse to get super close to her right away and laughs it off, and it's really creepy. Yeah. He pulls a ladybug out of her hair, and it's just, like, all up in her personal Yeah, space. no. So, no, dude. So gross. Okay, yeah. And then secondly, Dan's not the oldest, which is very interesting. Ron, he is the eldest, and the thing is, like, he seems... he Okay, in the, at the beginning, he kind of seems to be the perfect Mormon man. He's in the bishopric. He's on the city council. He has a successful business. That is, like, his own business. He's got a beautiful wife, and he's got kids. But he isn't called to lead the family. Seemingly, maybe, because he would not do it the same way that Paul Lafferty would demand. I mean, I don't super agree with your thought on this, but... Okay, so what I gathered from just the beginning, from the first two episodes, I think that Ron was more willing to tell the family when they were being dumbasses and to like shut it down like and like go off and do his own thing because he did that like he didn't become a chiropractor like the dad did he didn't do the family practice he started his own business he was making a ton of money on his own like he was doing his own thing with his wife with their kids like in their home like living completely separate lives from the rest of the family and like yes he would come to those like big family activities but he was still like i'm my own unit like i'm my own person whereas dan was his father's son he became a chiropractor joined the family practice was easily manipulated into doing whatever dad wanted him to do and he also was super manipulative like his father which we will go more throughout the series so like i think if the dad had given it to ron or no i think that the dad would not have given it to ron because of that reason because ron was willing to do his own thing and not make the family comply quote unquote okay interesting i i do see that now that you say that my only thought is that you can see later in the series that ron was not that strong that's the thing like it looks like he's set up to be a good guy but he is very much, he ends up very much a mess. Um, interesting. I like that. That, that makes sense. Okay. And then also we do get, um, so right around that time as well, though. Okay, guys, we get our first flash flashback or dramatization of church history with Joseph Smith. It's kind of wild, but it's also a very interesting way to see our history through the lens of non-members. And that will follow throughout the entire series. When, our, when the church does dramatizations of Joseph Smith, he's seen as like the calmest, the nicest guy and everything. Whereas in this show, like he's a much more, I don't. He's more sinister in this. Yeah. Movie. I was going to say stronger and like that doesn't really do it no, right. He's like, he's very sinister in this he's, series. Yes. And I'm not saying either way is correct, but it's very important that I think it's important that we see like different sides and see how things are can be portrayed because yeah we can see joseph smith as the coolest guy ever but like not everyone sees him as that and 
we need to understand how and why people do see that. Um, because some of these, some of the pieces almost seem innocent in what Joseph Smith does within the show. And other times you're like, okay, wait, there actually is, there actually are problems. And we don't really see them in that light. We refuse to see them in that light. I think this show kind of brings up the point of like, why people really hated Joseph Smith back in the day because like from the church perspective we're all like oh he was doing God's work he was persecuted because he was so close to the Lord right he was a prophet he was a martyr when in reality looking at like just the mob's perspectives I'm not trying to justify mob mentality but like looking at the people's mentality like he's coming into a town building up a settlement with hundreds of people I don't know if he's getting like approval to build up these settlements either or like what the rules were at the time for like creating these sort of towns, cities, etc. Working overtime to convert people to his religion when all of the people in the town are like, thanks, but no thanks. And then ultimately leading towards polygamy and marrying like 14 year old girls from town. A a purse, a private citizen could be very unhappy about all of those things. So, like, it's showing church history from that other perspective that we don't see in the church, like, Mm -hmm. ever. We never see the side where, like, okay, I can kind of understand why the people of, like, Missouri would be pissed off that the Mormons were coming to their area and draining them of all of their resources. Like, I kind of get it. But, like, would I go after them and murder them? No, probably not. But I can see why they were pissed. Yeah, I, and I think it is important that as Mormons, we understand the complexities of our history, which we don't always like growing up. Like, And I've been to Carthage, yeah, I've been to Nauvoo and everything. And even then, I didn't really understand why Joseph Smith was arrested and in jail at that time. Like, we don't learn about like the news press that he was basically trying to burn down. We don't know about all of his rules and things that he was trying to set up as, you know, becoming president and everything like a lot of things that he did, we wouldn't agree with today. And we so we don't focus on that. And we kind of sweep it under the rug, which is not the way it should be. And like, we're not saying like he was perfect or that he was a villain. We're saying that he was a human. And there are issues with anything that a human does. We're not trying to justify anyone's behavior. We're just saying that it's, it's more nuanced. Nothing here is black and white. And we need to understand that. Um, so you get to see that a lot throughout the entire show. And then there's a lot of about church history that also gets mentioned, like the Mountain Meadows Massacre. So that will be coming up again in episode seven, where we'll focus more there. We've already talked about it in another episode yeah. too. Yeah. So. Okay. So there is a quote that is brought up in the church, or not the church. <laughs> not the church. <laughs> in the show. <laughs> There's a quote that's brought up about the church in the show by Alan he says, quote, this faith, our faith, breeds dangerous men, end quote. So first off, chilling. That is a very chilling quote. Second, we have some thoughts about this, obviously. So the first thought I have kind of goes back to Ron. Right from the beginning, we have Ron with this desire to lead his family as the patriarch and being like the focal point of the Lafferty family once his dad is on a mission. And his mother even like pushes that narrative by saying, you are the fulfillment of Heavenly Father's promise. You will lead the family one day. Do not let your father's words sway you otherwise. And she really like strokes that prideful narrative. Yeah, that was interesting. So like, 
from this point on, we can see that Ron's ultimate desire is to be in control of the entire Lafferty family. That ties really well into this quote that Alan says, because the church really pushes men to being the end-all be-all of their families, of their wards, of their stakes, of everything. The church is a patriarchal thing. We are very much focused on men have the priesthood, men have the control, men have everything, X, Y, Z, to the point where women take a backseat. And that leads to dangerous roads of men controlling things, unrighteous dominion, sometimes leading to abuse in families, in their wards themselves. Like it just leads to very dangerous situations with men in the church. Yeah, so I'm going to agree with that. And I'm going to, and I mean, I love this, but I also think that this can pertain to most faith, uh, most faiths as well. Um, because a lot of them are patriarchal, whether um, by their doctrine or just by the way that they've chosen to be set up. And any extremism can pretty much lead to violence. Um, so I, I don't want to say it's like just our church, but it it's it's just like any faith where it's going to leave op- leave that room open. And it kind of it's it's setting up a possibility in the fact that it's set up at all is very dangerous. And this show is an excellent example of like showcasing this. It's very well done um, of how like basic faith can lead everyone to, on all different types of paths, whether it's in the church or out of the church, whether it's to peace or whether it's to violence. And I, I hate it, but I really love that we have this show now that we have this kind of conversation started. Ooh, and it's going to get really ugly very quickly with this. Yeah. Um, then my last thought, I do, we don't need to go into this too much, maybe an episode down the line, um, but Righteous Callings, because Paul Lafferty is like, oh, I, I get to choose who leads the family next. Like, this is a calling. I get to give you this calling. And we talk about, and they talk about like different roles in the church and everything throughout the show. Um, and it plays a lot into Jed Pyrie's experience as well, uh, because he ends up going through his own faith journey throughout the show. And it's very interesting to watch to see how like someone of like a typical LDS faith like has to deal with all these people that he's interacting with all the directions that they've taken all the things that they've learned about history because there's a lot that he didn't know um he thought he you know he was being a good LDS father and then he's like wait what about this what like wait what like how did this happen I didn't know about this um and Alan's like yeah this happened so it's just it's just a lot that kind of goes on it's very important um, for us to kind of be aware of everything so that then we can start putting value to things as we choose to, to see where our faith can take us. That leads us into episode two, titled Rightful Place. So this episode is where we start seeing some alternative Mormon theories about Brigham Young. Basically, it focuses on some wild-ass teachings from Brigham Young, overall showing us the crazy behind Brigham Young and the way out there theory that I didn't know existed until watching this show. And I like, wait, which one started asking around the theory of Brigham Young being the reason that Joseph Smith died. Oh yeah. No, I've heard that one. Okay. Yeah. Uh Not hear that theory until watching this show. I was like, people actually believe that, but you know, 
Yeah, like some people think like he was behind it. It's just, I mean, <laughs> Mormon's gonna more. Okay, <laughs> um, so this episode also focuses on again the inequality between men and women in the church, like who can make decisions, who has to listen and obey, who can receive revelation for family, etc. And it asks the question a lot of what does it mean to be a true believer? I love that because it's a nuanced thing and no one really gets to decide that. And everyone's like, try, but everyone's trying to decide that for each other throughout the entire show. Yeah. Like everyone thinks that they have the right to judge or decide someone else's faith and beliefs. Like at any given time, whether because of their gender, whether because of their station in the church um, or anything else. And it's maddening and so frustrating to watch uh, because you're like, no, you're wrong. Like, you don't get to do this. And then you're like, wait, no, I know people in my own life that have like tried to do things like this before. Crap. Yeah. And I think there's something here, too, with unholy laws and interpreting the scriptures or the gospel doctrines differently. And it it's... This episode and the whole series really is a really good example of what Derek talked about last week in our episode with Derek and James from Beyond the Block, where Derek said that Satan is going to work overtime to get us to be more pious and devout in order to get us to sin, because that's his way into us now. And you can see in this show that as the Lafferty brothers work overtime to get more and more devout and more and more pious, the more they slip down this slope into crazy town and start doing all kinds of terrible things like polygamy, abusing their spouses, their children, killing people. Like it's, and it's all in the name of serving their God. And it's, it's definitely not true. <laughs> whatsoever it's terrifying yeah um but i i do like yeah so like they do a really good job of emphasizing that and they contrast it with bringing in brenda's character um and helping her speak to like the other wives of the brothers um so she talks with matilda um who is dan's wife so matilda is his second wife i believe i think the first one no he was single he was, he was single that's right okay and Matilda had once had another husband because um, she has she brought daughters. She's got two daughters that she brought into the marriage, which is important to note for later. So Brenda help, tries to help Matilda feel confident in herself by telling her that women can hear the spirit's promptings better than men because we don't have the confusion of the promptings of our you know what. Love that moment, Brenda. She's 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 such a darling in this. Um, she's wonderful. So Brenda does have a really big voice throughout the show um, because she's the one who was murdered and there's a lot of reasoning behind it, behind it. Not that it was a good one, um, but yeah. So we learn in this second episode that all the brothers are kind of obsessed with Brenda though. Yeah. Like, I mean, I have brothers, but like, they don't do this. This is not normal. They all thought like she was like super hot and they would tell Alan that who was dating her. And they, like, couldn't stop themselves either from, like, telling her what to do. Like, mind her place or obey her husband once, like, they got married. They were constantly, like, trying to put her in her place. And 
they also tried to tell Alan to mind your property. I would have slapped them so hard. Oh, yeah. With a plank and then a hammer. One brother, Sam, who says that in the, like, in their basement chiropractic office, as he's leaning up on the, like, post in the basement, he says, mind your property, Alan. I would have walked over to him and slammed his head into that pole. Like, get out of my face. Like, no. Get out of the marriage. (sighs) That's not anyone's, first off, that's not anyone's place to, like, decide on, like, how to manage your marriage. And that is not what you call your uh, someone's partner in marriage. No, we're not each other's property. No. We learn in this episode also from Matilda that Dan, prior to them being together, Dan was smoking and drinking and single at 27 and doing, like, all kinds of bad things. And then as soon as she came to Utah because she had a vision of the two of them getting married, he like sobered up and cleaned up his act. And then the two of them got married and he's been quote unquote fine ever since. Dan very clearly shows signs of severe mental illness in this episode. And you'll see it throughout the rest of the series. And I'm not using it as like an excuse for his behavior or anything, but like he definitely shows signs of like bipolar depression, dissociative identity disorder, or schizophrenia of some sort because he's constantly like up, down, all around. And all of this could have been taken care of or nipped in the bud if it wasn't the 80s and peak Mormondom where mental health was left unchecked and ignored completely. Yeah. I mean, we're not saying, like, this would have, like, solved everything or, like, he would have been, like, made, like... He wouldn't have been made whole or perfect, and there's still a good chance that he would have tried to murder yeah, someone, but at least he would have had someone keeping an extra set of eyes on him. Yeah, like, people can have mental illness and not do dramatic and crazy things. The majority of us are, like, fine in that case. Um... But we do think that if, like, he'd been able to get some proper help, that might have changed a few things for everyone. Okay, then it's very interesting, though, because then they start doing, like, flashbacks with, like, Dan and with Joseph Smith. And, like, seeing, like, showing, like, some parallels, basically, of their journey, which is... (laughs) (laughs) Very creepy. Creepy. I don't like it. But it's very well done. Yeah. Yeah, because, like, Dan tries to, like, become the sheriff in his town with, like, no experience or anything um, because he doesn't like what's going on. And that's what Joseph Smith is doing, too, at his time. And and it shows, like, in the flashback, like, the governor spoke with Joseph Smith and he said, mind the laws we got here or face persecution like the dog you are. And then Joseph responds with, if we want a rightful place in Zion, then we must build it no matter what. There is... A lot that just like gets insinuated here about like the da- about the upcoming dangers that are coming. Like we always kind of portrayed in the church, like oh, how could anyone hurt us? How could there ever be any danger? Like we never knew it was coming until it was too late, kind of scenario. And the series kind of makes it seem like no, we were constantly playing with fire in the beginning. Joseph Smith was constantly playing with fire, and it's interest. It's just very interesting to watch and to consider like the things that joseph smith was doing and what he wanted to do and how that affected everyone mormon or not i mean the way that it parallels with dan and his choice to stop paying taxes yes 
to not pay license fees or to like get his chiropractic medical license renewed, like to do these things that are requirements of the government. For certain reasons. Yeah, just because he's like, you know, it's not in the scriptures, so I don't need to do it. Or it's not, you know, I'm trying to live the gospel the way that Joseph Smith led the church in the 1830s, and none of these amendments existed back then, so I don't need to follow any of these laws. And all of that stuff, like, and then all of it just culminating in him making that decision to run for office because he didn't like the way that the government was working a quote unquote against him in 1984 matching so closely with Joseph Smith being upset about how things were running in the government in 1830 whatever like it's just frightening yeah very problematic <laughs> Yeah, parallel is frightening. Oh my gosh! Yeah, um, yeah. So they end up um, having a an organization they they have um, in the show Patriots for Freedom. <laughs> I immediately cringe at that like title, like patriotism and freedom. I know. Like, after everything that's been happening in the last like three five years, it's just like I wince at that. I I don't like it. Oh, you know the Lafferty's would have been at the January 6th insurrection. Oh, for sure. Uh, and they would, have, they would have been there. They would have been playing with violence the entire time as well. They probably Not would have just, been the ones that set up the like gallows outside of... Oh, for sure. For sure. Um, oh, yeah. Gosh. So, okay. And then I did find a little bit of information on that from Collider.com. So it says... That mo- much of the rest of the episode stays true to its source material and true life events, from Brenda being a former beauty queen and TV journalist to Dan's refusal to pay taxes, which eventually led to his arrest, as depicted in Krakauer's book. However, while the Lafferty's were vocal about their anti-tax stance, as the book states, there is no source to prove that they were indeed members of Patriots for Freedom, an organized anti-tax group as depicted in the miniseries. The book includes that Dan was in fact arrested for a series of tax crimes and not Alan as portrayed in the miniseries. The fourth episode almost accurately depicts Dan's arrest with the only change being that his wife Matilda was present with him in the car to witness the arrest which occurred after he was pulled over by the cops. And so yeah, like we, we it shows in the show um, Alan like being arrested like on his way to a wedding, wasn't it? For not paying like t- his tickets and everything. Yeah, but even more, like, we see how messed up the family is in this episode. We learn that as Brenda is trying to do well in school and get a job at a local news station, all of the Lafferty's are against her trying to get a job. And they're like, well, if she gets a job, she's never going to have kids and she's never going to fulfill her role, her true role. So you need to remind her, Alan of what her place is and all that other stuff. So we get more of the crappy gender role stuff. Um, One of the brothers said, I love this quote. Um, He said, quote, the world seduces women to abandon their virtue and then their ambition grows and spreads like a disease, distracting the men around them from their responsibilities. End quote. I hate it, but I also love that quote. I think it is, it's, so eloquently explains what their point of view is with gender roles. And even though it's infuriating to me, it helps me to understand 
where they get these crazy ideas from. Yeah, their mentality. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, we learn, and we'll come back to this at another point in the show, we learn in this episode that Paul Lafferty is abusive and manipulative, and it's exemplified in the time where he beat Ron's dog to death with a metal baseball bat in front of Ron as a kid because Ron hadn't completed his chores up to his dad's standards. So literally the entire family is messed up. It's insane. And I mean, I really love how they did the part did the portrayal because like i said when you first meet the family they're having a huge get together you know they're working together to make a meal and then they're asked to do some service for their neighborhood their neighbor kind of thing and, and clearing that field of rocks like on the surface it looks like very mormon family focused and everything like you're not looking too hard they look great and then piece by piece you see that facade crumble and the pillars that keeps their family together is not good at all. It is very poisoned. It's it's terrible. And I love that because I like I've seen that in some in some families I've known. It kind of makes you double take and like think twice about the families that you see in church because yes, the Lafferty's were they were likened to the Mormon Kennedys throughout the yes, show. Yes, exactly. I hated that comparison. However, it is very true because everyone like idolized the Kennedys, but the Kennedys had so many freaking family issues that like nobody paid attention to until like the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. And that's when people started really focusing on the issues of the Kennedys. And similarly, the Lafferty's had so many issues, but like everyone in their community idolized the Lafferty's because they were all members they all came from pioneers like Lafferty's used to run the state of Utah at one point or another and like everyone idolized them so it's just you have to think twice when you're looking at these families in your wards and you're idolizing them because they have their issues too and they could be just as toxic and dangerous as the Lafferty family or the Kennedys or any other family like no one is perfect Everyone's got their issues. Every family has their imperfections. Um, yeah, so it's very interesting to see how this proceeds throughout the show. And then we get to start seeing um, Jed Pyrie's faith get affected by, uh, around this episode. Because the first one sets up like, okay, yeah, he's like the perfect Mormon dad kind of situation. And then he starts learning about some issues within the Lafferty family. And they're like, oh, they're not... They're not that perfect. What, like, why aren't, why isn't their faith good enough? Kind of thing. And you, you get to see the first step that he has to take in kind of understanding what's going on in other people's faith because it's not that simple. Um, like his doubts begin about here. It's very interesting, especially like as he talks with Alan throughout the show. Uh, Jed Pyrie says that a Latter Day Saint does not kill someone for stepping out of the rightful place. To which Alan replies, "No." It's all over our scriptures. God said it was better for one man to perish than for an entire nation to die in unbelief. And like after this, it just Jeb has to like start like realizing that things are not that black and white. And it sucks, but it's really good and it's it's important. So let's dive in a little bit further. We're going to episode three, Surrender. At the end of the last episode, Detective Taba, Jeb's partner, who is Native American, it's Gil Birmingham, 
And this is important because a lot of racism does come up in this episode. So Detective Tabak goes to the Lafferty's cabin in the woods to try and find the rest of the brothers. They've got two, I think, in custody. They've got Robin and they've got Alan. Taba ends up injured and Lafferty's are trying to defend their home by shooting at the police. It's very akin to a stereotypical West Virginia mountain man defending their property. <laughs> it's giving I married my cousin vibes in this episode. Like, it's very... You're just like, are you, are you kidding me? Um, please, no. So he's stuck up there. Um, and then Jeb and, and the police go up to the cabin to rescue Taba and arrest another brother, Sam. Um, <clears throat> and then we've got a situation that happens where... Jeb says, I'm a Mormon before I'm a cop. He puts his belief above his job. We're going to see this play out in the next couple of episodes, which is very interesting. And I was very curious on how they would end up doing this. Um, because, you know, we've had that, like, come up in, like, politics and before. Like, we had that come with John F. Kennedy. We had it come up with uh, Mitt Romney. Who are you guys going to listen to if you guys become president kind of scenario? And so we get to see that that news that that is not that black and white down the line. Um, and I think it's like very important that he does start that journey. Like it's a bit messy, but I mean, he can be more before he's a cop because he can hold on to his values um, and like, you know, and be that good kind of I'm going to put in quotations that good kind of person um, that a woman aims to be before he's a cop and use those values to do his job the right way. Like we should all use our values to do our jobs the right way. Um but doesn't mean he needs to use all other elements of our culture and to his advantage or disadvantage in doing his job. But yeah, so let's just take a sharp left turn. We're going to touch on something else that was definitely discussed a lot. Um, I know when the episode came out uh, because it goes into Brenda and Alan's wedding day, including receiving her endowment. Like, they do a whole scene of them in the church going through things, if that is troubling for anyone. Um, there was a lot of debate on whether or not this was appropriate to be shown, but they they did because they could. And parts of the temple experience, both current and past, like, are shared. And it's it's very interesting to, to see them actually, like, talk about things that we don't typically talk about in the church. Like, they talk about some of the taboo things. Um, there are moments where the sisters-in-law talk about how awkward it is. Um, and like one gets butthurt about talking in the temple, which I mean, you're allowed to talk, you, like, you're not supposed to like be allowed, but like you can talk. And then there's also the discussion about honoring your covenants happens in here. And there are a few things that are different in there. For example, like they used to have, um, I mean, they used to touch parts of your body. I'm just going to like put it out there, um, which was definitely my fear of growing. Like I didn't know this in the church. Growing up, I was very terrified that this would happen, that I have to be naked and people would be touching me in the temple. When I was finally getting ready for my endowments, I learned that this was not the case, and I was very relieved about it. And then, like, a few years down the line, I realized that this kind of used to happen, which definitely made me uncomfortable all over again. So that's just, like, my personal experience. And so in this, in these flashbacks, it does kind of show that kind of thing was happening. Um, I think it changed, what, in the 90s? Um, it's changed a couple times. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's definitely been a lot of changes. I thought that this was a good representation of a live session because that, like, that's what I experienced when I went to the Salt Lake Temple for a live session. Not like the initiatory scene, but like the being in the room with everyone together and the people in the front. Like, I experienced that. So, like, I thought it was a good representation okay. of a live session. 
also with the old people being the main. Oh my gosh. That always made me laugh. Anyways. um, Yes. So the initiatory, so I don't know when you got your endowments. Like four years? I don't know. But when I got mine, so I got mine in 2012 and they were still having us wear the shields. Oh, really? We were wearing the jumpsuity shield things. Like you weren't just wearing your temple dress to get your initiatories. So like the thing that she's wearing in the episode that they like the (laughs) person slips her hands through that's what you wore except the seams were sewn up at that point so like oh that change had already happened like i guess it happened in like the early 2000s where they made that change to okay we're just going to sew up the slit of the shield and instead of touching your body parts you're just going to put the hands on the head um for initial stories and then for like your endowment it's still the same but then when I came home for my mission, like a year or two later, I think it was like 2015, that's when they completely moved away from having you wear the shields in initiatory and you could oh. just wear your towers. So Dude, like then I I think I came around like right with that change. Yeah, Thank so goodness. Like, different um, for everyone. So like I yeah. remember having to put on the shields and wearing them. But I also remember when they made that change. Temple stuff changes regularly like i need people to know this that things that you do in the temple change over time like the covenants that you make are always going to be the same but this the little details about each covenant the things that you do while you're making those covenants those are going to change so the logistics about showcasing them Yeah. yeah yeah interesting so like that scene where like they do the like throat slitting thing in the episode oh yeah i'm not surprised that it existed before well like that's that's part of the blood atonement thing like that was in the beginning of the covenants and then they took it out like well it's technically still in there yeah um it's technically still in the endowment ceremony at the beginning It, it there just needs to be more about it they don't do that symbol, and they don't say, like, we will, like, I, I know there used to be some kind of language that was violent, more violent. I'm sure there was, but. <laughs> they took it out at least that 20 years ago. I know <laughs> that much. Yeah. I don't have, like, any proof at the moment. I just know it used to be thing, because I've heard it in passing. So, yeah, the temple thing is a lot. I feel like I need to say this, like, People who create shows and depictions of temple worship are not doing it to be malicious. I need people to understand that. People tend to get very up in arms anytime like anything temple related is put on TV or movies or anything of the like. They're not doing it to be malicious and to be like, haha, look what those idiot Mormons do in their temple. They're so stupid. That's not their purpose in it. They're doing it either as part of the context of the scene that things are happening in or to just be like, this is what they do. And also we can't get that up in arms about it because the church has let out like multiple resources on the church website about what happens in the temple. There's there's a few reasons why they were supposed to they were able to do so many things for that scene accurately. And not just because some of the people who are, you know, part of the show or helping create it used to be Mormon. It's because they also have enough church resources allowed, 
not not allowed, um, but like made public, yes, available that they can use to source their material. So th they're using this to cr to further establish their story and to provide more context into why things were happening and the mindset that a lot of these characters had at that time for various reasons. So this episode also has our first mention of the term blood atonement which we are going to hear a lot about going forward. So a blood atonement means to cleanse one of their sins by spilling their blood out onto the ground. They relate this phrase to the piece of church history where the Hans Mill massacre occurs in 1838. But this theme is going to follow the series going forward. We're going to hear a lot more about blood atonement as the show goes on. Another thing we're going to hear a lot about is the word fornicators, <laughs> which yeah, <laughs> I immediately think of the Princess Bride, where Vicini says inconceivable all the time, and Inigo Montoya goes, "You keep on saying that word. I do not think it means what you think it means," oh. and that's literally all I thought about during this episode because <laughs> the brothers say fornicators all the time not when someone has had sex with another person but because someone is lying or they're disobedient or any other way that they could explain that they're not doing exactly what the person wants them to do uh, basically they make up their own definitions of words to make sense of things and it just makes me laugh every time they say it in the show i've never i've never heard that term used for anything else i mean i feel like we need to do more research to see if like it ever has been used for anything else but, but like it's funny because you can even see how like jeb is confused and like detective, yeah detective is confused they're like brenda's a fornicator and detective tava's like she she had sex with another man and then sam's like she did and he's like you brought it up like <laughs> <laughs> yeah well then, well then like brenda gets confused as well because i think it's matilda who calls her that at one point in the show she's like you've been fornicating she's like who do you think i've been with and she's like no you've been doing this you've been doing that and then yeah. so they've basically use grab the term and they're using it as an overall umbrella term to define all these other issues without at all using the usual term for fornication it's such a mess it's such a mess it, it really i also is. love it every time they oh say gosh. fornicators it makes me laugh every time and then we also see more of paul lafferty being manipulative and abusive to his family um specifically in this episode, it's right after Brenda and Alan's wedding, and he is trying to reprimand Dan for losing the family practice and pretty much losing everything because he's not paying taxes or doing what he's supposed to be doing for the government. Um, and so he takes off his belt and he hits Dan's hands with the belt in front of everyone. The other brothers, their wives, their children, everyone, anyone around them. Ron steps in to stop this because he's like, there's kids here. Like, you got to cut the shit. I have such strong, I'm sorry. I just have really strong feelings about, about what happens next because it is terrible what Lafferty does to his son. 
But he continues to make it worse when Ron does stop him. Because Ron does stop him. He actually tries to do something about it. Which is good. Which, you know, gives us hope for Ron. And yet, then, Lafferty is like, you've just got too much anger in your heart, son. Like, let's take a deep breath. Let's go back inside now. And pretends like nothing happened. And Ron doesn't fight him off, which is kind of understandable because it's very hard to do that, uh, to change that relationship you've got with a parent. Um, but the fact he did something, it, it should say something. And it's just a very complex family situation and problem that you learn about. You just... I don't know. I just have so many feelings about it. Well, it also is weird because right after Ron stops the belting, Paul Lafferty is like, oh, let's let's settle this like Lafferty men. And he punches oh, yeah. Ron in the face. And I'm like, that would have been That's the moment true. that I like drop kicked Paul Lafferty. Like yeah. his face would have been in Dude. the car. Right. Ron doesn't fight back and he doesn't and no one else protects him. No. They just all brush it off. It is the worst family. Oh my gosh. But immediately following this scene is my favorite scene of the entire series. Where Dan and Matilda are praying in their hotel room after the wedding. And Dan is to he's seeking the Lord's will of what he should be doing or whether or not he should be guiding and leading the family. And Dan repeatedly yells, I will do anything and go anywhere and he keeps screaming that and gets his wife to scream that and the kids to scream that until he finally receives his call from heavenly father to lead his family and restore the church to its rightful track if you watch nothing else from this show please just watch that moment because that is such a memeable moment um it's a lot. But this is where Dan finally feels like justified in doing everything that he's been doing. He believes that he has received revelation from Heavenly Father, that he is the rightful one to lead the Lafferty's and restore the church back to its true roots, the way Joseph intended them to be. So this is the beginning of the end. Right. Well, and then it, it really just showed that how that kind of tracks within the church as well, um, because then it, it, it then you can see how it reflects within Deb's experience. So this episode goes into like how how sometimes like we just kind of do that kind of thing and we call it good. So in this in the same episode, uh, Deb takes his twin daughters to go have their baptismal interview, and so Deb sits in it with with his wife. And so they, they go through it and everything. And then Deb starts asking legitimate questions and he's asking for advice. He needs some input on like what to do, how he needs to like move forward. But he's not getting any helpful advice. He's getting told, don't ask those kinds of questions. And I don't go digging into the past. I trust the prophet of today and that the prophet will never lead us astray. So he's basically getting the same kind of input and same kind of guidance that Dan is using to push himself forward. So you can see that kind of parallel track, which is very interesting. And you can see Jeb getting like having a struggle with it, though, because I mean, absolutely you should you you should go digging into the past. You sh you should try to understand things that have happened in your history. You need to know the truth so that you can make accurate um, analyses and, and directions for yourself. And bishops should be encouraging people to find the answers to their questions, period. Because, I mean, really throughout the whole show, Deb is learning about all these problems that the Laverty family went through. And every time he goes to the church for input, he's finding confirmation 
that the Lafferty's were not really doing anything wrong. They were going through the same steps and routes that the church kind of prompts. And that's like what leads to Jeb and his faith crisis. It's very clear to see how this kind of stuff could happen. He's forced to face it in the mirror kind of thing. But we do want to share two more points um, from this episode. They do have Robin in, in custody. And Robin is the one who spills the tea about the list. That is how they start moving the case forward. They've got a case. And Robin's the one who kind of sounds crazy. He's kind of going off his rocker when he's talking to them. But he tells them about the list of names that they've got. And that is how they start moving forward. Because at the end of this episode, we now have three Lafferty brothers in custody. We have Alan, we have Robin, and we have Sam. Sam is nonstop yelling quotes from the scriptures about like the heathens being burned in like the lake of fire and brimstone, that sort of crap. Robin comes in talking like that. And he's like, you have no right to keep me here, blah, blah, blah. Like, and he is doing this, like a similar thing, but he's a little bit calmer about it. But when he finds out that Brenda has been murdered and when Erica has been murdered, he realizes, I know who might have done this. And that's when he starts sobering up. He calms down and he starts talking and complying with the investigation. And that's when he brings up the list. He turns things towards his brother, Dan, and Jeb and Detective Taba are able to start moving forward with this investigation. The other thing is, this is the second time I've watched this show. And watching it a second time makes me appreciate how much Alan grew as a person in comparison to his family. He was the youngest in his family. He went from being like the blind follower of his siblings who went along with whatever his older brother said to being well on his way to becoming a feminist and realizing how much his family was messed up. Unfortunately, it took his wife and his daughter being murdered for him to get to that point. But the fact that he got to that point is something that we need to acknowledge and celebrate because a lot of people don't get to that point and they keep the generational trauma going. And Alan looked at it and he was like, this is wrong. This needs to stop. And the one quote that I want to share that like highlights that is when he says, I didn't see it at the time, but I was building Brenda a new cage, a prison, in reference to him telling her that she needs to quit her job at the news station and start having kids. And it was really powerful because he grew up believing everything that his family taught him and about like these gender roles and everything. And while he's like in custody in police custody and he's talking about these things he's realizing like i messed up like i should never have let brenda quit her job to have kids like i should have let her do what she wanted to do and maybe i could have prevented a lot of this from happening in our lives so it's just we have to applaud alan for realizing where he messed up and what could have happened otherwise because his other brothers surely didn't realize that soon enough. No, they did not. All right, so we are moving on to episode four. 
if you didn't already think the family was unraveling, this is where we get to see a lot more of it. Especially as like they as Dan starts digging into his anti government beliefs and his decision to run for sheriff to become the law in his town. Um, as well as his search for a purer Mormonism that then late then leads him to the LDS church. So while he's delivering uh, construction materials to an FLDS compound, he asks them about polygamy and is led to the principle of the peacemaker, um, which is a document that they've got um, that was written way back during the beginning of the restoration. Um, and in it, it talks about how women are subservient to men and that a man needs to have at least three wives to make it to the celestial kingdom. Oh my gosh. I hate it. I hate it so much. The worst. I hate it. I, oh my gosh. Um, I don't want to be yeah. here anymore. Like, I hate it. It's the worst. Yeah. And it gets worse. I know. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, it does lead to a flashback of church history where it has Emma learning about the revelation that Joseph received about plural marriage. She confronts him about it and tells and tells him that she'll take more husbands if this is truly God's will. Then the spiritual manipulation comes into play with Joseph receiving a revelation right in that conversation, commanding Emma to not take another husband. And if she doesn't submit to Joseph, she will be destroyed. It's such bullshit. It's bullshit. It's such it, bullshit. It, it's very problematic in every way that I hate so much. Uh, but it does make some sense um, of the actions of the Lafferty boys. So Dan is constantly telling Matilda to be obedient or else Ron starts doing that with Diana, his wife. And we don't see too much of Robin and his wife, but we do see Sam being manipulative and threatening toward his wife, Sarah. And that does reflect throughout the show. Um, the few moments we actually see Sam and Sarah together, he's very forceful with her. I, I really hate this um, for many reasons. One of the main ones is that you see in the show how readily the men turn to violence with their women and children that they've committed themselves to their lives to. Um, it really shows that they were just like waiting for a chance to have permission to do this. You can see from the beginning then, basically, if you, if you tell a man, okay, yeah, actually, this is allowed now, and they go with it, then that means they've really just been waiting for the chance to do that. They've never seen their wives as equals. And that's extremely worrisome. And I feel like that comes a lot in faith-oriented focus couples. And it shows that they never thought that it was wrong in the first place. Yes. They just wanted more permission to do yeah. it. It's infuriating. I need to also say this to like going back to the Joseph and Emma thing. I don't know how much of this is true. So like, I'm not going to say that like from a historical context, like we need to accept that this is church history and this is what happened. Okay. I also, we don't know how much of like this scene was dramatized by the screenwriters. Like we don't know if this actually happened with Emma and Joseph of her confronting him and then him receiving that revelation in the moment. We don't know if that actually happened or not. So I'm just saying that if you are confronting someone, specifically your husband, and you are challenging whatever quote-unquote revelation he's gotten, and he flips the script on you and pretends that he's getting another revelation in the moment that's commanding you to do something else, leave. You do not have to stay for that because that is 100% spiritual manipulation. And he is playing you 
No, he does not get to dominate your life like that. That is not okay. I am here to say it outright like this now. If anyone is listening that is in a situation like this, you need to leave immediately. Find a way to get out. That's not okay. Yeah, so this is going to play out a bit in the show. Um, But then underscored in this episode, we do need a note. um, So there is the subplot of Jeb's mom, who he takes care of, and she is suffering from dementia. Um, So not only, like, is he trying to figure out if he should be getting her, like, mental health care and getting her something, um, which comes up and gets used a little bit in the plot. And we've seen, like, some of her problematic episodes, um, whether she gets lost or something. Like, not problematic as in, like, she's a terrible person, but, like, bad things are happening because she's in a difficult situation mentally. Um, But it does get worse here. It kind of crescendos um, in this episode where she starts making... Or she's already been making it and it gets worse. She's making anti-Semitic and racist comments about people needing to accept the gospel or being sent to the celestial kingdom. I've heard these arguments before and I hate it. And it's very problematic. I mean, we can take it from a perspective of, you know, 2022 and almost say, hey, she's a product of her time. She's got dementia. She doesn't know what she's saying. But we shouldn't have to explain it away. Um, Like I said, I've heard people say these things. A lot of people still believe things like this in the church today. And that can come from people of any age because of what they've been taught or because of the things that they've been taught. And this is the accumulated information they're making out of it. So it doesn't have to be said straight to their face. It can be an accumulation of like, okay, here are these things that they're being told. And this this is the analysis. This is the answer they come to. And comments like these get brought up in lessons by older older people in in wards and in stakes. Like, they can seem innocuous and like the ramblings of confused elderly people, but we do need to call them out and we do need to correct them because there could be people who are learning things in the ward right then. And if no one calls them out, then they're going to think that that's the case as well. And they're going to spread that misinformation and it's going to keep getting worse. Yeah. And they're going to think that the entire ward thinks like that too. Yeah, yeah. So we need to make sure that we're kind of aware of these kind of situations and that we're supporting each other and learning better information and making sure that we correct ourselves and each other when the time comes. This episode also brings up a lot of taboos that come up in regards to contacting general authorities, the prophet, and other church leaders as well as how some church leaders think that they are the fountain of all righteousness, trust, and knowledge. So for context purposes, in this episode, we find out that Diana wrote a letter to the prophet regarding her husband and her husband's brothers, um, basically creating their own offshoot group of the church and the teachings that they're going over, and she's worried about it. So she writes to the prophet for help. Jeb says writing to the prophet is like writing a letter to Heavenly Father directly, which not quite the same thing, but okay, whatever. And then it gets amplified by multiple visits in this episode and future episodes of church leadership to the police station and in other phases of their life. So one example in this episode specifically is that Robin uses his one phone call to call his stake president, Orton Ballard, and he comes to the station to give quote-unquote spiritual counsel to Robin. 
While he's there, he has the audacity to tell Jeb to release all of the Lafferty boys into his custody while they sort out the case. As if that weren't bad enough, he also has the audacity to question Jeb's spirit or testimony because Jeb pushes back and says he won't release them because they're suspects in a literal murder investigation. Freaking insane. I had to rewatch this scene twice because I wasn't sure I was I was listening yeah. right. And I was like, you did not just say he that. That's he does. It's, it's, it's crazy. Absurd. On top of this, President Ballard warns Jeb that he shouldn't do anything that might embarrass the church. And this scene infuriated me for multiple reasons. Number one, the stake president was incredibly condescending. He was self-righteous and he thought that he was the fountain of all knowledge. Like, bro, if you truly believe in the Articles of Faith, go with number 12 and honor and sustain the law. Like, Get the f*** out of here. Let the detectives do their investigation into the murder of two of your other stake members. Like, get out of here. Stop trying to interfere. Number two, saying to Jeb that he shouldn't be doing anything that will embarrass the church is also incredibly condescending because the church can handle the embarrassment with their team of lawyers and PR people. They have dedicated staff that can handle that. Let him do his job. And the third thing, is that Jeb, our sweet baby angel, is so like shaken by this experience that he goes into his office and he throws up in a trash can. Yeah. If you didn't know this before, I am going to tell you that you can oppose any leader in the church. You can tell them no. You can tell them they're wrong. You can tell them to get the f*** out. You can tell them whatever the hell you want. You can defy their wishes. They are not Jesus. They are not in charge of your life. You can do all of that while still being a good Latter-day Saint. Yes. I'm just going to like add that on there. Because yeah, and you you can because you can see in the scene like, oh, all the cops, like all the cops that are members like they know who the sake president is. They think he's super cool. And then, you know, be, and then when Jeb sees him, he's like straightening his tie and wants to make sure he looks presentable and is super nice and respectful about it. Because that's what you do to the people in power. That's how you treat your church leaders with as much respect as possible. And then to have them say, you're doing things wrong. Your salvation is in question. You should be doing this. You should be a Mormon before you're a cop kind of situation. It's a lot. And I, I like, and the thing is like, because I was raised very much that way, I can see and feel everything that Jeb was going through. And I'm like, dude, that sucks for you. Um, it's the worst. I was just viscerally angry because I'm like, you can tell him to f*** off. Like, you can throw the freaking law at him. You can be like, you are interfering with this investigation. Like, I can arrest you right now. Yes. For obstruction of justice. Do you want to keep, you want to keep trying me right now? You want to be in a cell with him? I'll put you there. I don't care. Like, I just, I was, vis- I was so angry. <laughs> It was it was extremely upsetting. No, I oh. I completely agree with everything that you said. I just know the feelings of like the intimidation that you face and like trying to do any of that or like want even just wanting to do that. It's it's uh, it's so much. Um, and I I love this confrontation because it really does force any Mormons who are watching it to like consider like okay like what would I have done in that situation. 
you know, you know, a lot of people are going to ask, does that make me a bad Mormon for doing no, that? No, it does not. It doesn't. It it doesn't. It it doesn't. Um, and then we do want to also like want to lead into another example of what happens through the series because those girls, uh, uh, Jed Pirates girls, are trying to get baptized. Um, they they go through the whole interview process, and with everything that's been going on and the faith crisis that Jeb is going through, he asks that they postpone the baptisms. His wife, like practically wants to leave him over this because she's like that's not how it's done everyone's going to judge us they're going to think that something's wrong they're going to put our testimonies into question we will not be welcomed at church it's like it's a whole thing and like i understand their concerns because like i said like i've definitely been in that mentality um but i'm telling us all that that mentality is wrong we sh like just because a kid can get baptized at the at the young age of eight doesn't mean that they have to if a kid does not get baptized right after they turn eight that is okay they can take their time there are many people who should take their time we shouldn't be doing something just because we can i mean and it does get worse though for them because the bishop's wife basically shames them when she learns that they've postponed the baptisms yep she stops them before they even go into church that next sunday yeah almost like you guys shouldn't even be here she says something along the lines of like, sometimes when you've waited so long for a blessing and it comes, you take the blessing for granted in reference to their daughters who they thought would never come because, you know, uh, Deb's wife, Rebecca had infertility uh, issues. And so like, and she's, she's just, the bishop's wife is telling them like, you shouldn't be doing this kind of thing. You need to get those girls baptized or you're basically damning yourselves as well as your children. Like, that's what she's saying in nice, polite terms. Like, you know, a passive aggressive woman can do. That's highly inappropriate for her to do. Like, we can't prove this, but it definitely sounds like the bishop was telling his wife some things that she has no right of knowing. This is another one of those moments where you can tell people to f off and to stay out of your business and still be a good Mormon. What you do in your family is nobody else's business. What decisions you make about your kids getting baptized or if your kids decide that they don't want to get baptized that's nobody else's business tell them to f off that's it Ugh, yeah this episode made me so angry as you can tell uh, it gets worse yeah. here. first three episodes are like okay this is weird okay this is a little bit troubling and then after four on you're just like i hate everything so much viscerally angry for the rest of the series amen okay so the last thing in this episode that is one of the big focuses is that this is the beginning of the Lafferty boys abusing their wives. So we learned that Ron started hitting Diana basically in this episode. Um, we know that Dan has been emotionally and spiritually manipulating and abusing Matilda for like basically their entire marriage. And then we can easily assume that the other brothers were also abusing their wives as well, which we will see more of in the next few episodes. What was more infuriating than the abuse was that there were men in the church who knew the abuse was happening and called it, quote, just a domestic. Oh, yeah. And then they ignored it. So there was one brother who knew about the letter that Diana wrote to the prophet and he was instructed by the general authorities to kind of like handle the situation. So he called or he was talking, trying to talk to Ron about it, Diana's husband, 
And Ron got really pissed off. And this is also as Ron is trying to get another loan for his business and he's been denied the loan. Yeah, when things start falling yeah. apart for him. So Ron is pissed because he feels like his life is falling apart and now his wife is going behind his back and like spreading their business to like general authorities and stuff. And the dude sees Ron go outside and hit Diana and he just like turns around and walks away. He doesn't care that it just happened in front of him. Unbelievable. If you're witnessing domestic abuse and you know that it's happening and you do nothing about it, like I feel like that's really, really shitty. I understand that there are situations where you can't step in and do something, but like report it maybe and be like, send someone over for like a welfare check or like send someone who is trained in handling domestic violence situations. Like, do something. Don't just pretend it didn't happen in front of you. Agreed. Yeah. So, I mean, okay. So, historically speaking, um, there was no letter that Diana technically wrote, but it is said that she did confide in people at the time. So, um, they just added the letter in for this for the story's effect and everything. But it really does signify that while only one man was technically abusing Diana, everyone else was helping to make it happen and allowed it to keep happening. It does not make them that much better, if any better, than her abusive husband. You don't get to say, oh, there's just nothing I can do about it. No, if you know something is going on, it becomes your responsibility right then. We are our brother's keeper in that sense um, for literally anyone. It's never just a domestic. It's a problem and we can't allow that to happen again. That's not okay. So it was, it was very infuriating, not just to see how Ron began to abuse his wife, but the fact that church leaders in good standing were not doing anything about it and were not going to help. With this anger riding our bikes, we're going to jump right into episode five, One Mighty and Strong. All right, so this episode is where we learn about the close ties of the murder investigation with the FLDS church and the many offshoots of the FLDS. Which is interesting because, like, when I first heard about this, I thought it was strictly the FLDS church. Yeah, same. And I think that's, and that's how, like, it kind of gets represented in a lot of the ways. And it, it's not that. So it's about the offshoots. And we also see, like, a lot of abusive spouses and children in this episode, both from the Lafferty boys to their wives and children, and more flashbacks of their father and, and more. It's, it's just a very hurtful episode. So Matilda had her two daughters that she brought in to their wedding, into their marriage. Um, and as Dan kind of goes towards that FLDS vein, he decides to move forward with polygamy and wants to take his two stepdaughters as his next two wives. And Matilda, you know, obviously jarred by this and we see her actually stepping in and she does the only thing that she feels that she can and she helps them escape at night. So she stays with Dan, but she tries to get her two daughters to safety. Which is really good. It's really the only thing she can do at this point. We also see Ron start abusing Diana. And while he is screaming at Diana and like hitting her and threatening to starve the entire family as a result of stupid reasons, he tries to take one of his sons with him to learn the stuff that Dan has been teaching them. And Diana gets up and she gets a knife and she starts screaming back at Ron. 
she tells him, I will not let you take our son into this mess. Let him go and get out of this house. And she is ready to kill him. Like <laughs> This is the moment where I am like, Diana is a badass. I love her. I love that she's willing to fight to the death for the safety of her kids and for herself. And this is where you're going to see Diana really step into her own. Oh, and then after this, we see Ron going back to live with his parents after Diana throws him out. And at this time, we learn that Pa Lafferty is very sick and dying. Ron, while he has... We find out that Ron has just been excommunicated also, or he's about to be excommunicated. That's coming soon in this episode. He's basically losing everything, and he is very, very upset. He's in a really bad state. He goes up to see his father, and his father is laying in bed very sick, and he asks Ron to call a doctor. And at this point, Ron snaps, and he does the ultimate screw you dad by bringing up all of the times that his dad told him if you just pray you'll get better you'll be fine we don't need to call a doctor he also brings up all those moments where his dad hit him killed the dog in front of him all of the horrible things that his dad did to him so ron tells him maybe if you just pray about it dad things will get better we don't need to call a doctor. It is the most delicious bit of karma I have ever seen in TV ever. Like it's such, oh my gosh, it's just so beautiful. And then on top of that, as his dad is like basically dying, he tells Ron, the business of patriarchy isn't as simple as you think. It won't be easier when I'm gone. To which Ron replies, yeah, maybe not, but there can only be one, and you taught me that. Oh my gosh! I loved that scene so much. From a dramatic standpoint, it is beautiful, delicious karma coming full circle. Like, it is so good. But in reality, like, it's horrible. It, yeah, it's it's insane. It's absolutely horrendous. And I I don't have words for how bad this is, how messed up that a family has to be for that to happen, to be in that kind of situation. Uh, it's, just, it's just making me think back to all of our conversations about anti-intellectualism, like within our faith and everything. Like, it will cause problems. And this is just one of them. Oh, and then we also find out that, like, his dad died from a totally treatable infection. Yeah. If he had called the doctor, his dad would have lived. And I just love it. I love it. From a dramatic standpoint, I'm not encouraging people to murder their families this way. No, I'm just saying don't. from a dramatic and creative writing standpoint, it is so beautiful. And such good justice. Oh, I love it. I love that scene so much. I think it's so good. Oh Ugh. my gosh, it's a lot. Incredible. Um, this is why we don't need men in power. The patriarchy. Unnecessary. Because there's a lot more conversation as well that goes into like gender roles and women and men in power. Women versus men in power and obedience and everything. And we've already discussed a lot of 
um, this in past episodes, and it just plays out a lot through the episodes for this show. Um, it's it's just it's very important for us to be aware of at any given point, especially as members of the church, that we need to be on our guard to keep that from happening. This is where we learn more about the literal list. So Robin said that there had been a list, and now they learn that there's a physical list. Like, they've been talking that there might be one. Now they know there's a real one. There's a physical list that the Lafferty boys thought of to put together of people who needed to be blood atoned. And that is where we start to learn who is on that list. And we learn that Ron and Dan actually sought to fulfill the purpose of the list by killing those on it. And so Deb and Detective Taba actually get to the get the physical list when they go to the Lafferty farm. They find the other sister wives locked in a room as well, basically starving to death because Ron and Dan have fled to Reno and locked them in for days. Absolutely insane. And th well, and that's also like where they find uh, the Ma Lafferty, their mother, who is not helping and has basically supported all the problems throughout the family. Um, and actually, one thing I did want to note is that you can see um, specifically through the examples of Matilda, Diana, and Brenda on how they all kind of found ways to stand up for themselves, but also like suffered under the hand of their husbands. Um, and then Ma Lafferty presents as another really good example. So like Brenda like did one of the better jobs of like making sure she could do and fight back. Diana did what she could for herself and for her children. Matilda worked harder for her children than for herself. But they're all different. They all had their own reasons for doing what they did. And we all get to see the differentiation on how this worked for them um, and the situations that they faced and the outcomes that they, they brought around because of that. So I liked how they were able to showcase all the, the women's um, personalities and strengths and weaknesses. Um, and Ma Lafferty is definitely in the background, but then she comes out more forward towards the end and it's like i hate you too like the men i Great. just realized too as you were saying that that like the boys left and locked the sister wives in a room but ma lafferty was free to roam about the house and the farm and do whatever yep. she wanted like she just yeah she was okay with leaving them locked up in the room like that whole time yep if i could smash skulls i would there'd be a few more smash skulls. i would yes, yes. Yeah. Okay, so there's also a few more points that we want to share before we close out episode five. Okay, so number one is Brother Brady who comes in. He he seems he and his wife seem super friendly, super cool, and then you learn what they've been really doing. And they try to play off like, oh, we're we're cool, we're friendly, we're not the weirdest ones. But Brother Brady was very much part of their school prophets offshoots group. Um and Brady said that Ron came to believe that he could hear a truer voice of God, his own God, better than anyone else could hear him. If you hear about someone like that, you should be running away and make sure they never know your name or your face. This line just speaks volumes for religious zealots. They think that they, the voice they're hearing is the voice of God, and it's really their own God. And you see a lot of that throughout this entire show, especially like I thought it was most strong with Dan. Dan is the worst. Um, oh my gosh. 
I know I'm like influenced because he tried to be Captain America in Falcon and the Winter Soldier, but like he just plays that he, that he, character who wants to be good but is too twisted he immediately to be good. Came on screen and I hated him, and I yes. immediately knew that there was something wrong with him, and I don't know if it's because he just has a face that I don't like, or if it's because he is really good at playing those kind of characters that are just really messed up. I don't know what it was, but I just hated him from the jump. Hate him. And then the second point, my favorite point, Detective Talba. He plays off like, you know, rough in the beginning and everything. He's like, definitely not Mormon. But honestly, throughout the show, especially in the last couple of episodes, you see that he shows more Christ-like love and compassion than anyone else in this show with the way that he takes care of Jeb. The man is always pushing his partner to go out the door, to, like, go sleep, go spend time with his family, um, to call out the, like, issues in his beliefs. Um, he's trying to support Jeff, like, the entire way in a no-nonsense matter manner. Um, that seems rough in the beginning, and then by the end, you're just like, this dude is literally the best. He's not religious. Um, sure, he smokes and he drinks and does stuff. But, like, he's a good person. He cares about people. And he's using those morals to be a decent human being. Whereas other people are finding their religion to excuse their morals um, and do problematic things. What was it that he said in the last episode? The, like, members are, like, somewhat compassionate people. But what was that comment? I had it written down at one point. It was so good sporadically compassionate people oh my gosh i love it i absolutely adored that one like yeah i had that as a note because yeah um it's true though and he's just he's great the entire show i love he's my favorite character my absolute favorite he 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 really is and like i know they they also talk about like having a compass and like how some people don't have a compass and they bring up the argument that i've heard a lot throughout my faith of like okay if you don't have religion if you don't have a god if you don't have scripture then like how are you going to be a moral person guilt it's just like i can still be a good person like i'm i'm still doing things right like good enough at least um and especially because i think it's in this oh it'll come up in episode seven but like you can make anything sound like scripture and that doesn't make it a good thing. Like they they reference like um, a sex worker and a casino as a script as scripture, which is is more funny than problematic in my perspective for a part of this. You can make anything sound like scripture if you want to. It doesn't make it moral though. And uh, Detective Taba hit it on the hit on the head with sporadically compassionate people, because we're only compassionate in the ways that we justify it to ourselves. So the last thing in this episode is that it touches on the theory that Brigham Young wanted Joseph Smith to get executed so he could take over as the leader of the church. That was meant so he could continue the practice of polygamy. I mean, this whole theory makes me laugh, honestly. Because um, as much as I think that Brigham Young was crazy, I don't think he was that malicious, but I could be wrong. I don't know the I don't know the guy. The moment where Ron is basically letting his father die, we see that whole scene spliced together with Carthage Jail and Brigham Young taking over as the leader of the church. So, like, it keeps, like, you flash back and forth. The editing is fantastic in this moment. It's wild, but it's also fantastic. 
really, I just wanted to highlight that because it's such good cinematography <laughs> at that point, honestly. It's so good. Well, it, it, it does. And then it paints a picture that um, we take martyrs very seriously within the LDS faith. And if we can be anything in this lifetime, then we will be a martyr. I know I say we as collectively, it does not necessarily mean Tracy and myself. Um, it is very problematic and we're more than willing typically to die for our faith and be martyrs uh, because that's basically, sometimes I feel like that's the best way to like get to heaven kind of thing. And that's a terrible mentality to have. Yeah. But anyways, let's go ahead and continue on and see how much more assistance we can get. We're going into episode six, which is Revelation. Yes. So this episode goes even further down the rabbit hole of priesthood leaders trying to take over and make people do what they think is best. Because it gets it can keep getting worse, you guys. It, does, it just keeps getting worse. Um, we see this with Brenda, who was hit by Alan and is afraid that he is going down the dark hole of anti-government nonsense, leaving the church, etc., um, like his brothers. And so she goes to church leadership to ask them to grant her a divorce. In this moment, they turn and they flip the script and they ask to give her a blessing, which she accepts. And in that blessing, she is basically commanded to stay with her husband, to bring the Lafferty family back to the fold and that their salvation was in her hands. So you talked about spiritual manipulation earlier, right? That's some bullshit. It's like some major problematic, major bullshit. It's always men trying to make women do everything for them in every way, shape, and form. That's not okay to do to someone. There's no denying the fact that the church will always push for families to stay together no matter what. The church is always going to push for that. However, you are not responsible for anyone's salvation but your own. Even if you have like children, you are only responsible for them up until a certain point. And then they are responsible for their own, own choices. I just wish that more people would realize that you can make your own choices and defy the leader's wishes if you wanted to and still be a good member of the church. Like Brenda could have turned around and left that meeting and been like, well, I'm going to get a divorce whether you want me to or not, because by law, I can. I might not be granted a temple divorce, but I'm going to be granted a civil one and I'll be damned if you try and get in between me and the law that way. But like it gets worse because she expresses this to her mom or her sister. I can't remember which woman in her life it was. But that, that person says, you made a vow in the temple. You have a responsibility to make this work. Uh, uh. And in a way, yes, you do have a responsibility to try. However, you also do not have a responsibility to keep your entire family together if they are actively working to destroy it through abuse, getting arrested, breaking the law, like all of those other things. Vows don't mean anything when you and your children are put into unsafe situations because of the choices that your spouse is making. He's already broken those vows at that point. Yep. And you have no obligation to fix what he broke. Mm -hmm. So, Another problem that we see in this episode is Brother Brady. Brother Brady is the stupidest man, I think, in this entire show. He says, quote, 
When people say they felt the burning of the bosom with the Holy Spirit, I was raised to believe them. If the Spirit is telling them one thing and me another, how am I to tell which one is it? They didn't teach that in my ward. End quote. I hate it, but I get it so much. Well said. I hate you, but well said. Even though he is a moron, an absolute moron, he does bring up a good point about indoctrination and spiritual manipulation. So it's true that we don't teach people how to discern what is correct versus what is incorrect revelation. But the bottom line is that if someone receives a revelation and yours differs from that revelation, you should be following the revelation that you received because it is meant for you. I can't receive revelation for Kaylee. Kaylee can't receive revelation for me. Dan Lafferty can't receive revelation for Brother Brady. Yeah. You can only receive revelation for your stewardship. So if I received a revelation that like I need to go and kill a bunch of people on a list and Kaylee receives a revelation that she shouldn't do that, she should listen to that revelation and not mine. It's really not that hard. Yeah. And when people say they're receiving revelation for you... You don't take them at your word, their word. You're going to need to do some study and prayer for yourself to be like, I don't know, dude. I don't, I don't think this is right. And that's whether it is your spouse, your partner, your friends, family, the prophet. It's like it plays into everything and everyone. And then, like, kind of continuing on that thread, it really, like, this episode, like, really opens up the conversation and starts unpeeling some of the layers of the idea of scripture against logic and ethics. You really do have to sort through them. It's very interesting to see how they played out in this series. And, like, it's definitely been something that's been more on my mind lately as I've, you know, delved into, like, my scripture study and everything, like how, um, you know, our faith plays into ethics and so on. Um, so for one example, we, um, in the episode, it shows how Ron goes to Oregon to, on his own mission to find a pure Mormonism. Um, and he finds an, another FLDS offshoot group that practices polygamy and drinks wine. The leader says that you have to put the prophet in historical context when he reasons wine in the word of wisdom and it being spiritual, therefore given to us. Um, and he's like, yeah, he said no wine because of the temperance movement that was going on at the time. And that's all. I love these kind of arguments. That's great. Part of the problem here is that with this logic, we can then explain away everything in the gospel if we go to with the historical context. So we need to examine the scriptures closely, but you also have to use your knowledge of the scriptures, gospel, and ethics in general to make sense of everything. Um, so, like, Dan tried to manipulate the scriptures to absolve him of his abuse towards his wife, for example, um, and to allow him to lead the church and course correct to obey only parts of the Constitution and throw everything after the original Ten Commandments, or Ten Amendments, sorry, away from the Bill of Rights and everything else can be thrown away. And that's not how it works. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. As Jeb is learning all of this stuff, he starts reading a book that Alan recommends to him because and like helps him find an evidence that they would have gotten when they were raiding all those uh, the houses. And so then it confronts questions Jeb has been having about the church and about his testimony. So as he tells his wife that he's struggling, she coerces him into giving his testimony in church the next Sunday. 
which I don't like. She's like, you have to go bear your testimony. You've got to do this. Um, and, but, and then she also says that if he's struggling, she can't struggle with him. And if he loses his testimony, she's got to divorce him. It's so stupid. It is so stupid. It's terrible. And yet, it's such a prevalent LDS thing. Like, they knew what they were doing with this show. They were bringing out all the things that we try not to talk about and pretend that aren't a problem, and they're bringing it to the forefront, which is terrible, but I really like it, and I really appreciate it. And I wish more Mormons were more willing to watch this kind of show because we need to confront a lot of this, these uncomfortable uh, beliefs and ideas that we've got, like this one, because I know so many people who are willing to leave their spouse just if they decide to leave the church because when someone leaves the church it doesn't mean that they're leaving all their loved ones they're just changing their faith it doesn't mean that they become a completely different person they're just trying to be more true to themselves in whatever way they can if them leaving the church means that they are now doing the crazy stuff that the Latin brothers are doing like threatening to murder people and all that other stuff yeah that's fine you can leave your spouse at that point but just because someone's having a faith crisis that's not it's not a good enough reason to leave your spouse. The only other thing I wanted to bring up in this episode was how badass Detective Taba is. Once again, this is a Detective Taba stan account. When he is confronting Ma Lafferty and he says, I don't care if you think the devil himself wrote Utah laws. You live here. Utah law applies to you. You'll go to prison on accessory charges. So when all of your sons get put to death, you won't even be allowed in the gallery to say your farewell. Honestly, that's icon behavior right there. And I just, I love that line and that moment. Just a good one. Just a good one. Okay. And then like one last note that kind of like follows on that thing is with the Lafferty family and especially with Alan's struggles, we see how belief can come in the way of family versus individuality. And we've already kind of touched on that a little bit in past episodes of like individuality versus um, community and so on. But we didn't, we didn't discuss as much how it, how that gets affected within a family because if you try to deviate from the family norms then that completely changes everything um and you see a lot of that play out as the brothers are figuring out their faith and finding different routes and what alan goes through and as you've talked about earlier like he tries to support them he's a he's a blind shape along for the ride and then he starts to realize and think for himself like okay no this isn't actually right like no i can't abuse my wife because she like we are equals um, and like, so on, like Alan does go through that journey and begins to understand it in a better way. Whereas his family did not otherwise understand that quite an intense episode and it doesn't quit because we've got one more to get through. Yes. So let's move on to episode seven, blood atonement. So this is the episode where everything hits the fan Jeb and Detective Taba go to Reno to find Ron and Dan after realizing that they killed Brenda and Erica um, and that they probably were going after Diana and other people on the list as well. We learned that Ron and Dan were actually proud of the fact that they killed Brenda and Erica. Um, they were proud that they had done as they were commanded by the Lord, quote unquote, and they felt that they could take pride in being a peculiar people even further, just go in full ham on this i just hate how they how this show shows how much pride that mormons have in the weirdest things and it shows the the dark side of all of this because when we're being a peculiar people it should be about like us praying over our dishes not about us killing people it's not okay no 
We also wanted to point out that, like, this murder happened in 1984, which we know. We've already said a bunch of times. But it was just seven years after the priesthood ban was lifted, which also helps clarify a lot about why there were so many racist attitudes still permeating throughout this entire series from church leaders, from the Lafferty's, especially in reference towards Detective Taba. Like, there was a lot. Yeah, I was wondering about that. Like, in the beginning, I'm like, Gil Birmingham is great. Is there a reason, though, why they chose him? And I do feel that there are a few reasons that they did it. And they do have racist connotations that get used in there. Like, someone does call him a Lamanite, in there which because of his skin color ugh, mm. um so i don't like a lot of things that they did but one of the things i did like was that they kind of used him to speak up about some of the other issues such as the massacre that um gets discussed um in one of the episodes about like okay no this isn't totally accurate you guys have one idea of what happened it's in this episode it is okay it's a little further down in the notes so we'll go on more about it but detective Taba does have a voice and he does get to use it and provides more of like a uh i i don't have a word for this he just he's just a pillar in the story that we very much needed okay anyways moving on um so we also do get to see more about diana so she did leave her husband and she fled to florida um, but she did learn um, what happened to Brenda and decided to go back to Utah once she knew her kids were safe um, to try and save the other wives of the Lafferty boys, starting with Matilda. I love Diana. I love her so much. That was incredible of her to do. Yeah. I don't think it was necessarily smart for her and her kids' safety to go back to Utah to help the wives, but I do love the fact that she was prepared to go back and crack skulls in order to save those other women. Like, I just love that about her. Right. There is a scene where she's, um, where Sam, yeah, it's Sam who comes with Sarah to try and grab Matilda and take her back. And Diana fights for Matilda. And it is a beautiful and heartbreaking scene. But what makes it worse is that there's like four to six men at that gas station just standing around and watching. She begs them for help and they don't do anything. They see Sam grabbing at Matilda and shouting at her and they won't do anything because they don't want to get involved because they don't know what's really going on. And it's so disgusting. I hope they all have diarrhea for the rest of their lives. At the very least. Explosive yes. diarrhea. Okay, so towards the end when uh, Matilda is leaving with her children to safety, she finds out there was a letter written from Brenda, um, which is delivered after Brenda's passing. And this did not really happen. Um, there was no letter that ended. Um, but it is a nice touch that they added for the series. Um, but that's not accurate. Although it does show that Matilda um, and Diana do end up speaking up against their husbands and the child. So we also see the culmination of all horrible church leaders in this episode. So that's been a theme of this whole series is that the leaders are really not so great um, as depicted in this show. Oh, this is terrible. Yes. And it culminates when a general authority comes to the police station to talk to Jeb about his faltering testimony and more about the case. So he tries to connect with Detective Taba first by talking about how wonderful the Paiute natives were as partners to the early saints and then talks about the mountain meadows massacre in a highly edited way which we're gonna put a pin in that and come back to it in a second 
But it gets even worse when the same general authority leaves the station after not getting his way and he dusts his feet off at them both and leaves the station. If you don't know what dusting your feet off is, it is essentially a curse um, that was used in the scriptures and in the early church for people who were inhospitable or hostile towards the church. So think like the people that were trying to kill Samuel the Lamanite, um, they would be worthy of a dusting of, off of the feet because they were trying to kill him. Um, I found on Wikipedia that in 1899, the first presidency directed leaders to stop doing that as a routine practice. A routine practice? Yeah. There, there were examples listed in the Wikipedia page of early church leaders doing it. And they were directed to only do it as directed by the Holy Ghost. James E. Talmadge said, quote, to ceremonially shake the dust from some from one's feet as a testimony against another was understood by the Jews to symbolize a cessation of fellowship and a renunciation of all responsibility for the consequences that might follow. It became an ordinance of accusation and testimony by the Lord's instructions to his apostles as cited in the text of the New Testament. In the current dispensation, the Lord has similarly directed his authorized servants to so testify against those who willfully and maliciously oppose the truth when authoritatively presented. The responsibility of testifying before the Lord by this accusing symbol is so great that the means may be employed only under unusual and extreme conditions as the spirit of the Lord may direct, end quote. That's insane. Just because you've dusted off your feet doesn't mean that your work is done. You are ultimately going to be held accountable to the Lord for that dusting at the last day. And you will have to explain to the Lord why you did it. And he will determine whether or not it was warranted. When I saw that scene, all I was thinking was, I really hope that that general authority is ready for that conversation in the next life because... It's not going to end well for him. He basically just did it because he didn't get his way, but not because Jeb or Bill were doing anything particularly hostile to him or the church at that point. So food for thought, y'all. Yeah, that's insane. I've never heard of that before until I watched this show. That's insane and highly problematic. My goodness. Okay, so this is also where the the compass conversation actually took place. I know I talked about that earlier. Jeb hits, like, the pinnacle of his faith crisis, and he's like, I don't know what to do anymore. I don't know about the church. I don't know about my faith. And he's trying to, like, figure this out with Detective Taba, um, the only person he feels he can talk to because everyone else in the church is judging him harshly for questioning anything in general. And so he's asking, how do you do this? Just walking through life with no purpose. Tab is just like, dude, like we all have our own like variation of like what a compass is. Like you just got to like trust your gut, man. And he says like, your gut is wiser than most people think it's a compass. It will give you all the wisdom you need. And like, they're all like shouting and talking out in the middle of nowhere. And Deb's just like, I don't know what to do. And Tab was like, dude, just figure it out. You're going to be fine. Just stop freaking out. You just trust yourself. But going back to the uh, the general authority talking about the Mountain Meadows massacre thing too, so he paints it in a in a highly edited way that glorifies the church and basically makes it sound like 
the people that came to this area were the same people that tried to kill Joseph Smith and were horrible and they were out to kill the saints as well. And so they partnered with the Paiute natives and convinced them to kill the people that were coming through. And the Paiutes realized that this was a load of crap and they figured out that they were from a different part of the country than the mobs that killed Joseph Smith were. They realized that they were just passing through, which they were, and they dipped. They were like, bye, we're not a part of this. And the, also half the problem was that the white people were going who wanted to get rid of them. The Mormon settlers were trying to like pretend to be, they wanted to blame the whole thing on the Paiute. Their leader realizes and they're like, no. We're out of here. Bye. bye. Yeah. No. So it's another check mark in the case of Detective Taba saving the day and telling the true story because like we've talked in a previous episode, it's it's terrible. It's a terrible, terrible story. It's insane. Yeah. So Detective Taba really plays a voice of reason and logic and ethics and like morals within the whole series, which is nice to see. And just just a reminder, like you don't need to have faith to be a good person. So it it I really liked how they did play Jeb's um, faith crisis, but like the conclusion doesn't, in my perspective, work very well. Um, just so like, oh okay, we'll just make this work now. It's it's more of like a real journey that takes a while and a lot of time. That wraps up the episode. <laughs> oh, I did have some information I did want to share on like what happened to everyone. Okay, Ron Lafferty attempted to kill Dan while they were sharing his cell. Then he also tried to attempt suicide in prison, but still got tried three times for the murders. He got convicted and was guilty and sentenced to death. Then he got an appeal and was found incompetent um, and got treated for mental health treatment. Um, Then they found his competency restored and he was tried again and received another guilty verdict and death sentence. And then he tried to like get more appeals, but was then sentenced to die by a firing squad, but died from natural causes in November of that year, 2019. Okay. So Dan Lafferty, elected to represent himself and we know that never ends well he took 13 minutes to attempt to make his case he was found guilty and sentenced to two life sentences um with no opportunity for parole and is currently incarcerated in the utah state prison's maximum security wing and has never expressed any remorse for the killings he said at trial i'm not ashamed about what happened it was just a matter of business Alan was initially a person of interest in the slain of his wife and daughter, but as he learned and shared everything, he led the police to Ron and Dan. And he shared that he knew what he had some idea of what was going on and that he stood up to them, but was unable to protect his family. He has since remarried and as of 2015 is living in Utah. Sam Lafferty is, he was based on Watson Lafferty. He fled Utah and the Mormon church for nearly 25 years. It looks like not a lot happened to him. Robin Lafferty is based on Mark Lafferty, who was the closest to Ron once the brothers were fully invested in the School of the Prophets. Mark was fully brought in who and believed Ron's revelations. Before the murders of Brenda and Erica, Ron and Dan picked up weapons from Mark's home. Following the slaughter, he was in contact with the police, warning them that local church leaders might be future victims. And he currently also lives in Utah. And then there is very little known about Jacob Lafferty, um, who is based on Tim Lafferty. 
No one really knows about him. They He was involved in School of Prophets, but that's about it. So those are the things that happened. Yeah. So overall, the series is very interesting. I thought that they used the term Gentiles way too often. I thought that was a little funny. Um, and they press upon the point of beards a lot, especially in the first like three episodes, because um, then all the brothers started wearing them. So I thought that was weird. And then all the church leaders like are sound like so predatory and so dangerous throughout the entire show, which I know they want to impress against. Um, it was just very interesting to see that because that's clearly not how we like to portray ourselves or anything. So I think that they were shown to be a little bit more violent than I'd like to think church leaders are, but it does show the dangerous side of faith leadership, which some people don't really consider. So Yeah, so that's basically our rewatch podcast episode of the Under the Banner of Heaven series. Maybe you can go back and watch it now and you'll know what happened beyond what we've just been talking about it. If not, then hopefully this was enough for you to feel like you've seen it and not actually had to watch it. Yeah. If you think that we got anything wrong, please let us know. Um, as well as like, just share your thoughts on on what you thought of the series. Um, if you think that we should have more non-LDS people making films about our church. Yeah. And then we wanted to leave you with two last announcements. So the first one is... Our next book club episode is going to take place at the end of September. It'll premiere on September 28th. So we will give you a link for a Google form for that one so you guys can join us. The book that we are reading is The Kingdom of Nauvoo by Benjamin Park. Thank you. Should be good. So you can find it online and get it and it'll be great. And then our other announcement is is that we will be taking the month of August off. We have a lot of things going on in our lives, so we need to take some time off. So we will reconvene in September. Yes, so feel free to rewatch our episodes in the meantime or watch Under the Banner of Heaven and or also read Kingdom of Nauvoo because that should be a very interesting book. And we'll come back to you in a few weeks. So thanks for listening, guys. We'll see you soon. Thanks. Bye. Bye.